<clears throat> well, if you would be turning to Romans chapter 5 with me, I'm going to continue this morning a little bit of a mini-series that, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, I felt the Lord had directed us into this area at the beginning of this year with a great need of us getting a more firm handle on the grace of God and its importance that it is clearly understood in affecting our lives. And so we have been going through a few weeks of teaching on condemnation and its cure. I think condemnation would represent the experience that most of us are in touch with when we are out of touch with grace. So if you're trying to take a a little bit of a blood test to see, well, how good is my understanding of grace? How effective is it in my life? Well, then I guess my question would be, well, how, how are you doing with condemnation? How are you doing with facing failure? How are you doing with continuing in God? How are you doing with taking steps of faith? How much joy is in your life? I think those all reveal how grace is operating in our lives. And so rather than just saying, hey, do we believe in grace? Oh, yeah, of course I believe in grace. Well, we believe a lot of things that aren't helping us on a daily basis. That's very unfortunate, but it is very true as well. Uh, let me begin by, you know, setting before us. Uh, um, it's the beginning of the year. It's January. Some of you are getting some tax information in the mail. It's always a joy to be getting stuff from mail from the IRS. Isn't that always fun? Well, let, let's suppose that in the next day or so, you're going to get a piece of mail from the IRS that is not the typical little bundle of joy that comes at this time of year. It's going to be a notice of an issue that they have found in your filings for the last 20 years. You have been misfiling your taxes and you have not been paying a very significant and large amount every year for the past 20 years. And, and you are guilty of tax evasion. So you have, you have broken the law. You have a huge amount of taxes that are due. You have a huge amount of interest that's accumulated. And you have a huge amount of penalty that is now due. And when you survey the numbers and the actions that they're about to take, they're going to foreclose on your house. You're going to lose every asset that you have. And you are going to be under the weight of a debt at least for the next 10 years, your life will be hugely diminished as you attempt to pay this off. And you're going to serve some jail time as well. Now, you, now put that on for a second. I want you to really think about it. You're going to move. You're going to pack your stuff up. And you're going to put a sign in front of your house. You have to explain to your family why it is that you're having to move. You're going to probably downsize assets that you have. You won't be taking any vacations for a very long time. Any sense of luxury in your life is now gone. And you begin to, to wear that. I mean, I want you to think about what that would probably feel like over the next several months to begin to posture your life to respond to that kind of news. And then one day a representative from the IRS were to show up at your house. And he has a letter stating that you've been pardoned. The government will not be taking any of these actions against you. You do not have to sell your home, liquidate your assets. You'll be paying the debt for the next 10 years and you don't have to go to jail. 
Now, I just wonder how you might feel in that moment. You'd feel the weight of the world off your shoulders. You, you couldn't imagine such greater news coming into your life. Well, that's what pardon sounds like. That's what it is to have your debt forgiven you. But what I want to explore today in the, in the realm of the gospel is that's only an aspect of the gospel. What we talked about last week was the remedy, the cure for condemnation. Uh, the title this morning is More Than Forgiven. Read this first line in your notes with me. It says, If God had only canceled our debt and removed the future reality of his imminent wrath, then the gospel would be incredibly good news. But there's more. That's not all the gospel. See, when one gets pardoned and gets set free from a jail sentence, if your sentence got commuted by some pardon, some action that a governor took or the president took, and you were pardoned, and you get set free. That's great news, but it'd be really more like the gospel if the government turned around and said, you did commit this crime, you are guilty, and we're going to forgive the debt and the penalty. You can now go free. And in addition to that, we'd like to give you a couple million dollars just for you to spend from now on. That would be more like the gospel. We are not just forgiven, although forgiveness is enormous when you consider the debt and the bad news that was facing our life. See, the gospel is good news because the diagnosis for our life was very, very bad news. One of the reasons why some of us don't rejoice significantly in the gospel is because we don't realize the shape we were in. We don't realize the debt that we were going to be called upon to pay that we could not pay and that the God of the universe was going to exact payment on our lives and it would have taken eternity and his wrath constantly being pressed upon our lives for eternity for that debt to be absorbed into our lives well beyond just being pardoned uh, we are now in the crosshairs of a God who's intending on blessing us by grace look at this thought from Terry Virgo and his Book. I love the title of this book, God's Lavish Grace. He says, Jesus not only rescues us from the wrath to come, he not only forgives us our sins, but he has obtained for us a place to stand in grace, a place of total acceptance and security, fully qualified and not fearing sudden disqualification or forced removal. His credentials overcome all the barriers that stood against us. No need to search the depths of our hearts for arguments to force our entry. The only way in is through His perfect righteousness. And having gained entry, we must learn to stand in grace. Now, I think for most of us, there comes a, a, this journey associated with grace in our lives where well, we're having to learn to be saved by grace. Right? At some point in our life, we walk through life. We were religious. We went to church. We had some ideas about good and bad. We had some concepts of God. We figured that we should try and polish our act up, do more good things and bad things. 
We had some concept that at the end of time, our life would be put in some kind of a balance and all the good things would go on one side and all the bad things would go on the other. And we're just hoping that we've loaded the scale just enough to tip it this way. And if so, God will be gracious to us and we'll somehow end up in heaven and everything will work out in the end. And then we come to the biblical teaching on grace and we find out that salvation is not about a scale. Salvation is not about our goodness. Salvation is not about our track record and what we've done to achieve a position before God. And we've got to wrestle with that. The first time you hear the gospel, it's foolish or it's offensive. It's one of those two. You either walk right past it and ignore it because it sounds like it's that's so simple. It's, that, that, sounds, that sounds too good to be true. I'm suspicious. There's something wrong here. Or it's offensive. Because it, it, it thrusts you into the only mode you can be in. You're guilty and there's no remedy. Well, that, that's offensive. I'm trying to work this thing out. I go to church. I've been religious all my life. My family is so-and-so. You know, don't try and tell me how bad I am. So we get offended by it, the grace of God. And we've got to work through this thing. So we finally come to a, a place where we understand we're saved by grace. And then we... Come into the church, we come into a relationship with Christ, we begin to live our life. And we begin to embrace sanctification, as we talked about last week. Sanctification can be very challenging. It can be very discouraging. It is a face-to-face battle with our sin and our selfishness and our pride. And grace, now, grace is in a different place. We're no longer wrestling with being saved by grace. But now, I like Terry Virgo's phrase here, now we're having to learn To stand in grace. I'm having to learn to do that. And I hope today is going to be very helpful in us learning to stand in grace. We're all convinced and there's not one of us going to heaven by our own works. Not one of us is in good standing with God because of our contribution. we've, we've, We've agreed with that. But now as we walk out our lives... Are we understanding that we now must learn to stand in a new location? We are not where we once were. We are in a different posture before God. We are in what I'm going to call the realm of grace. That line below that title says, Do not forget from where you have come. Don't forget the place of condemnation that you and I once stood in before God. Do not forget from where you have come, but also... Do not continue to act as though you still live there. You are on different ground. You are before God with a new zip code. Things are different. God is different toward you than before. You are no longer in this realm of condemnation. We said this in Romans chapter 5. We saw the, the cure for condemnation was justification. Romans 5.16 says the, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, referring to Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's why we feel condemned. That's why we were condemned. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, reign in life through the one man, 
Jesus Christ. There is a receiving here. We said the cure for condemnation. Remember, condemnation, our equation, condemnation equals God's righteousness plus our unrighteousness. So when those two things get around each other, you are going to feel condemned. The bright light of God. It's, you know, you ever look into one of those mirrors at like the cosmetic counter? It's like it's like it's shaped funny so that when you stare into it, your pores are as big as the opening in your nose, I think. I mean, it's you look at yourself and you think, I have a disease I've never noticed. My skin is horrible. Well, that's kind of what the righteousness of God is like. You get around it and you just notice I am. Oh, I, I so am under the wrong setting. I feel wrong about myself. Well, the only way to change that is either reduce the righteousness of God or change our unrighteousness into righteousness. That's how God fixes this thing. Justification is us receiving his righteousness. He gives it to us as a gift. It's not something we work up. We don't run real hard like we're on a treadmill and finally we've gone fast enough and okay, now you're righteous. Well, you just got past light speed. Excellent. That's not how you get righteousness. You get righteousness by receiving it as a gift. It never is generated by us. It is given to us as a gift. Now, how does that occur? And I want to traffic in Romans here for a moment. How do we go to where we are now receiving the very righteousness of Christ? His righteousness becomes ours. Well, remember this little passage in, in Romans 5. It tells us that one man sinned and that sin came into the world and with it condemnation. And all of us inherited from Adam because we were all in Adam. That's the way the Bible uses that language. We were inside Adam when he sinned. His sin became ours. And so the whole race now is trapped in this realm of sin. And we all fall short. We're unrighteous. Well, in a similar way, God solves this by taking us out of this one man, Adam, and putting us by his doing, the Bible says. He has put us in the one man, Jesus Christ. So in the same way that we had Adam's unrighteousness and then we acted in that, and that's who we are, we have now been put in Christ so that we have his righteousness. So we said last week, this is a geographical relocation. We've been moved out of one address and into another. In this new location, we have a different relationship with God. God is looking at us and dealing with us on a different basis. Because of where it is that we find ourselves. Now, let me, let me just let us see how it is that we were transferred from Adam into Christ. And, and Romans is really building this up. All this is being taught on its way to Romans 8 that we look like, looked at last week. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Here's how we got out of Adam and got into Christ. Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. If you're a human being drawing breath, the law of God has claims upon your life. Thus, and this, here's an illustration. He says, thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died 
to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to or that you may be joined to another, married to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that, listen, we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Something has changed. The way we live our life, the way we serve God, we're not to do it out of the old. We're not to do it the old way. We don't relate to God the old way. We don't serve Him the old way. We're in a new location now. And, and how did this happen? Well, this illustration here that's being given is being given out of a marriage covenant. When two people come together, the covenant of marriage requires that one of them die for it to be broken. And so God says, well, in a similar way, when you were born into this world and you were born into Adam, Adam was married to the law. All the race of Adam was married to the law. And so that marriage continues. And the only way for it not to continue is for someone to die. Now, the problem is, this is our reality. You didn't realize this, but in God's economy, you walked the aisle and married the law as a fallen human being. You were married to the law. How do you get out of that marriage? So you just can't decide, well, I'll just be a Christian. I'll just marry Christ. No, you're married to the law. You can't marry another. Well, how do you get out of that? Well, somebody's going to have to die here to break that relationship. The problem with that is the law can't die. You can't kill the law. So the, the law is simply the righteousness of God codified and put on paper. You, you can't kill that. So for this relationship to be severed, I'm going to have to die. Well, how does that happen? I mean, I'm, I'm 43 years old, and I think I would have remembered dying at some point. You know, I'm thinking that would have been an event I would have probably paid attention to. So how did this death take place for me to no longer be married to the law and available to be married to Christ? Well, back up a little bit. Paul's building this whole argument as he moves towards Romans 8. In chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you hear these phrases over and over again? There's a new way of doing life. The old way was in the realm and the land of condemnation where everybody was condemned before God. There's a new way to do life now. It has to do with what's taking place leading us to Romans chapter 8. Look in verse 5. For if, if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, if we were united, some translations say, if we were united in his death. But when was this death? Okay, I'm in Adam. I'm married to Adam. I'm, I'm therefore married to this law. And a death needs to take place. When does that death take place for me? 
Now, this is very important. I know this, is, this sounds like theological uh, stuff that you don't need to know. But when does that death take place? Does it take place when you finally die enough? You. You do something to finally do whatever it is that qualifies to be called death. You know, finally I have I've done enough God-type stuff. I have lived a certain manner to where the pulse of the flesh can no longer be found. So God comes and he checks, his, checks the pulse of my flesh and he says, this dude's dead. Collins is dead, finally. Thought would never happen. It's taken forever. He's finally dead. He can now be joined to Christ. Is that how I died? Because, you know, I can tell you right now, if this is the pulse of sin in my life, it's still beating. And I'm pretty sure if God's checking it, he can find it pretty easily. I still got a pulse. I'm still alive. So, obviously, it's not my death this is referring to. It is Christ's death. When did that occur? Well, for us, it occurred almost 2,000 years ago. The death that separated me from the law was the death Christ died for me on my behalf. And what God does is he mysteriously puts me into Christ so that his death can now be my death. So that now I can be severed from the law and joined to another. So that I can be put in Christ. And in Christ now, I'm given his righteousness. Therefore, I am justified before God completely. That's what we looked at last week. We have been made perfect before God. Because of a relocation that's occurred. Now, in this relocation, all throughout these verses, we keep hearing newness of life. Serve in a new manner. Serve in the newness of new life by the Spirit. This, there's a different realm here that's occurred. And look at this thought that's written out in your outline there. It says, we have relocated to a new address. A new relationship to God. Different than the one we had in Adam. You do not have the same relationship with God that you had when you were in Adam. Different than when we lived in the realm of condemnation, which we'll see in just a second. Different, this is important, and I don't think enough Christians get this. Different than the rest of the world. Your relationship with God as a person who is in Christ is different than the rest of the world. Now, let me tell you why this is a problem, and you may not be thinking this through right now. The problem we have with that is somehow we are imposing on God this sense that God must be fair. We think fair is probably one of the most important words in the English language. So we think God must be fair. And, and see, it wouldn't be right, as far as we're concerned, it wouldn't be right for God to treat this person different than he treats that person. God must be equally available to all. God must relate to them in all the same way. It wouldn't be right if God made a decision that he's going to relate to this person in one way and this person in a different way. He's going to bless this person and curse this person. It wouldn't be right, you see, if God did that, would it? We don't like that kind of a God. Now, the problem with that is we are finite, limited, sinful human beings playing around with a concept that we don't even have a good definition for and then imposing it on a sovereign God who can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants, based on his perfect character and understanding of what is the right thing to do. Listen, how many of you know, we don't do well with understanding what's fair and what everybody ought to be doing. Hey, welcome to society. 
You paying attention to the debates and all that kind of stuff going on? People don't know how to, how to label what's right and what's wrong. I mean, just angry contention taking place. I don't watch too much of this stuff, but this past week, for some reason, I, I watched one of these political knucklehead shows, you know, where they get a guy on there who's just a talking head, and he gets three more talking heads on there with him, and they all kind of just kind of throw barbs at each other and throw things around. They love to eat each other for lunch. And, uh, and then this, this one panel, there was apparently some big to do this past week in South Carolina. Uh, something about Barack Obama. and uh, Somehow, this panelist was defending why the black vote would go to Barack Obama and saying that you know, he thought, you know, he thought it was right that folks who are black would vote for Barack Obama because he's black. They can identify with such a candidate, and so therefore the vote's going to go to him, and he was supporting that. Well, the guy on the other side of the world who didn't like that idea jumps down his throat with both feet, I says, so you're telling me it's right for a white candidate, for a white voter, to turn around and say, well, I'm just voting for the white guy because I, I relate more to him. It's right for me to vote for the white guy. And these guys went back and forth over that and just wanted to eat each other alive. See, we don't know what to do with fair. We don't know how to spread right behavior to everybody. This is how you should behave all the time. This is how you should behave all the time. We are in no position to impose on God how he should and should not relate to people. We haven't figured it out ourselves. So you cannot come to God with this idea that, no, I, I can't have a different relationship with God as a Christian than the whole world has, because that would be wrong on God's part. No, it would not. And it is different. And if you don't get that, I don't think you can walk in newness of life. And I don't think you can embrace grace correctly. Unless you absolutely are understanding from scriptures, we'll look today, that God is relating to you differently than he is relating to all those who are in Adam, who are under condemnation, in which you are not, because you are in Christ, and there is therefore now no condemnation. Where does the condemnation come from? Well, it's just people who were taught some kind of Puritan values, and they're just kind of all underneath some kind of laws. I hope we've undone that. Condemnation comes from sin that came through Adam that spread to all men because you're at odds with God. Condemnation comes because people refuse to believe God and they love the darkness rather than the light. That's where condemnation comes from. Condemnation is a result of God being God and us being sinners. It's not because somebody created some heavy-handed laws and, and imposed them. The religious right did that. No. Condemnation is a result of sin and God being righteous. So condemnation really results from God being who he is. He is not relating to us any longer that way, but he is relating to a good big portion of the world that way. Let's just walk here, this relocation that took place. Let's walk down this path of relocation. At some point in our lives, whether you know it or not, God picked your life up, packed it up, and moved it. He hired some heavenly movers and relocated you to a different address. Uh, Romans 1, verse 18 it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's the realm of condemnation. And Paul began this section by saying, um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the next thing he says is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. Because God is righteous, he is going to respond to unrighteousness a certain way. And his response is condemnation 
and wrath. That's God's righteous response. So when you read chapter 1, you actually find the trickle of wrath beginning in chapter 1. Because the Bible says man exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation. God, we don't want you to be number one. We want fame and popularity. We want the high of drugs to be number one. We want money to be number one. We want sex to be number one. We want other things besides you to be number one. So if you don't mind, God, we don't mind you still staying in the equation somewhere. But can we move you to two or three? And when man does that, God says you exchange the glory of God for the glory of something else. And then it says, therefore, God gave them over to this and he gave them over to that and he gave them over to that. When man turns you over to sin and says, here, you want sin? Go have it and go have its consequences and go have its results. He, you know, the the eternal wrath of God is beginning to drip through the fabric in that moment. You are beginning to taste the wrath of God as he turns you over to sin. Well, that's what God has done. Ephesians 2 verse 1 that whole section in Ephesians here, we'll, we'll, we, I've got it there on that one page. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this... It's a brief description of the realm of condemnation that all of us lived in, where God is rendering judgment on the guilty and preparing wrath as the response. That's what the realm of condemnation like, and that is how God is sitting. God is seated as a judge, leaning towards his wrath, about to be poured out on all those who are condemned. That's the posture of God toward those who are in Adam under the condemnation of sin. Now, something's happened to us, though. When God removed us from that realm and placed us into the realm of grace, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, right? We've come all the way through Romans, with all of its explanation to this point we looked at last week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is postured differently now, isn't he? There is condemnation for those in Adam, but there is none for those who are in Christ. Ephesians 2, picking up right after that verse we just read a moment ago, verse 4, <clears throat> says, But God, being rich in mercy, remember that but God goes back to, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, not but man, not but well-intended religious people, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and here and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Did you know all your stuff got moved? Did you know when you became a Christian, God took your life and packed it up? And moved it to a different location now. You don't have the same address any longer. You are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Your mail goes there when it comes from God. Verse 7. So that, why did he do this? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness 
toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works that no one may boast. Now, I don't know how many years it took me to, to catch verse 7. It kind of gets lost in the volume and the fame of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. We kind of go to that verse and we skip the verse right before it. And we, we only see, oh, by, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that on yourself. And we can quote that and we don't realize what was right before it. Why did God do this? Why did God relocate our lives, put us in Christ and place us in heavenly places? Well, verse 7, why did he do it? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Now, do you understand? That is much more than you are pardoned. You are not just forgiven. God has put you in a location in grace is where we need to learn to stand in grace. We are in grace so that he can lavish his kindness on us, so that he can pour out on us the kindness of his intentions, the goodness of who he is. Now, let me develop that a little bit. If you'd stay there in Romans... By the time we get all the way through Romans and we get past this breaking news of chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then he moves to this next thing. He moves right to the place, just like Ephesians 2. We go from being children of wrath, but God, but God steps in. He makes us alive. He wipes it out. By grace, you've been saved. And then we learn, but not only are you saved by grace, but now you are the objects of a God who is overcome with a desire to bless your life. And to lavish his kindness upon you. That's how he's sitting. He's not sitting on a judgment throne. The folks in condemnation, he sits on a throne of judgment over them. Awaiting the righteous response where he can pour out his wrath as a right response against sinfulness. But over here in Christ, he is sitting on the edge of a seat of mercy and grace. It is not a judgment seat. It is not a condemning seat. It is God trying to figure out what he can do next to bless and lavish his compassion and his kindness and his goodness upon our lives. And just like Ephesians takes us there, watch, Romans goes there too. Look in verse, chapter 8, there's no condemnation. Look in verse 15 in chapter 8. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We, we don't just cry out, God who once wanted to blast me but no longer wants to. God who once was going to sit as a judgment and destroy me but now will tolerate me. But that's not what we cry out. We've gone from being guilty, condemned sinners to the voice now that says, My Father, Abba, Father. Do you understand? This is much more than just being forgiven. This is much more than just being pardoned. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you understand? Wouldn't it be great if God would just forgive us? I mean, we owe God and we're going to face his wrath. And if he just calls that off, wouldn't that be great? But then for God to turn around and say, I not only call that off, but I make you a son. I make you an heir. 
mean, what, what would you do if you got a call tomorrow saying that your uncle was a Rockefeller and you didn't know it? And all this inheritance is now yours. Millions and millions of dollars belong to you. Listen, God didn't have to do that, but it's in his nature to do it toward us. That he makes us heirs and sons, heirs with Christ. To gather in the depth of what's being said here. What Christ is inheriting, we are inheriting with him. Well, that makes sense if we go back to the fact that God took us out of Adam and put us in Christ. Wherever he goes, we kind of go with him. He's seated in heavenly places. We're seated in heavenly places. He's receiving God's gracious love and embrace and kindness and inheritance. We are receiving exactly the same thing. It's mind-blowing to stop and think we are being treated exactly as his son is being treated. But you understand, it couldn't happen differently. You cannot be in Christ and receive different treatment than Christ is receiving. You'd have to be outside of Christ for that to be true. But being in Christ, we receive what Christ receives. Look at verse 28. Romans 8 continues. Same thought, no condemnation, but a God who's going way beyond just forgiving us. Look at verse 28. This is such a famous verse, sadly not understood well. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's a very loaded statement. It is a very, very loaded statement. We have probably quoted that verse in moments of trouble. And perhaps we have quoted it to others in moments of their trouble. Listen, man, God causes all things to work together for good. Make sure you quote the rest of it. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, hold on to that phrase. It's very important. You cannot understand grace without that phrase. Called according to his purpose. Listen, this, this is not a carte blanche verse. You may not give this to everybody you come in contact who is suffering through the human experience. And sometimes we want to do it. We want to quote the Bible in ways it's not to be applied. Who is this verse to? Is it to everyone? No, God is causing all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are in Christ in the beginning of Romans 8 verse 1. Those who are not in this realm. He, he is treating this group differently than he is treating this group. Do not use this verse incorrectly. Do not throw it at those who have not been placed in Christ. Because it doesn't apply to them. Now look at the rest of this little section here. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also Justified, And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who is this verse about? It is about those who are justified. It is about those who, Romans 5, 1, who are at peace with God. It is about those who have come out of the realm of condemnation and have come into Christ, into the realm of justification and are at peace with God. God causes all things to work together for good. God didn't just forgive you. He now is postured to cause everything in your life to work together for good. It's part of grace coming into your life. It's the realm of grace that God tampers with everything in your life 
in order that its destination is to do good in your life because of the way he's now postured towards you. I put in your outline that quick little thought from Ephesians 1, verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. According to something that's been in place in God. According to a purpose that's in God. That has always been in God. God has always been up to something. And grace reveals what it is that he's up to. When you you read in Romans 8, verse 28, those who are called according to his purpose, you are just getting another slant on the same phrase. According to the purpose of his will. God has been up to something. You keep reading in Romans 8 and you get a little bit further explanation about that. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? These are such great comforting verses. Please realize that God aims them at you. They are not aimed at those who are in Adam. These are precious promises for those in Christ. Listen, there's something about knowing that intentionality of God that that awakens my soul toward God differently. It's not just some bland everywhere. Everything works out good in its own way. Everything's beautiful. I'm okay. You're okay. God's okay. You know, this is goofy. This is ungodly. It's unscriptural. And it blurs the deep truths of God. Listen, listen to this. Verse 31. What then shall we say? To these things. If God is for us, well, you know, hey, I'm reading the Bible with implications here. Where there's an us, there's a them. Thank you for thinking with me. Where there's an us, there's a them. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I know these are theological words that sometimes we just prefer to just move on and not pay attention to them. You do so to the detriment of enjoying grace on a daily basis. You do need to see the reason why God is the God who's working everything for your good is because you have become someone different in his eyes. You are not in Adam. You are not in the realm of condemnation. You are in the realm of grace. Everyone in the realm of grace is God's elect. And he relates to them differently than he does the rest of the world. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? You can't be condemned when you're in the grace of God. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? See, the problem with us quoting Romans 8 sometimes is that we've quoted it without having read recently Romans 1 through 7. And we forget This isn't true for the guys back in Romans 1. The guys back in Romans 1 are being given over and being given over and being given over because God has looked at them who suppress unrighteousness and who live in unrighteousness and his righteous response is wrath and he is putting them away from him. But when you get to chapter 8, 
something's happened and there's a new group that's been formed and people have come out of Adam and into Christ and now they are the object of this God who is blessing and caring and saying, my love for you is so great that there's nothing and no one that could ever separate you from me. Some radical stuff has happened here. This context of God's purpose gets defined further when we get to Romans chapter 9. Lengthy explanation. I'll just kind of zero in on one salient point. Verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. And do you understand that we, we, we've joined this program already in progress? <clears throat> God has been up to something. God has always been up to something. God has been fulfilling what he has always been up to fulfilling. Calling people to be the recipients of his grace. So that when you are in grace, you are the objects of God's grace and mercy in a different realm than where we once lived. He's always been doing that. And in fact, what I want to walk us through here, if you'll turn with me to Joshua, I'm going to close with a quick ramble through Joshua chapter 24. Is that God has always, I think you could actually say, and I've, I've put it in your outline, is from Genesis 12 to today, I think you could actually say from the lamb slain from the foundations of the world to today. But it, it becomes much more clear and it actually becomes a bit more narrow. And it's also where Joshua starts in Joshua 24, that God has zeroed in on a segment of humanity. And he has postured differently toward those folks. He has postured in grace, lavish, abundant, kind grace. So let's just read and recount this for a moment. This is, this is about 1400 B.C., roughly. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Now what Joshua is about to do here, he's about to renew the covenant in the people's hearts before God. So that's what he's up to right here. Listen to how he does this. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Now, this is about 2000 B.C. or maybe even beyond that a little bit, 2100 B.C. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now, I just want to stop and ask a few questions, and I'll put these in your outline for a moment. Why do Abraham and his descendants receive favored status before God? These people are idol worshipers. I have no idea how gross their idol worship was, but grossness of idol worship is an issue that affects us. Idol worship, at period, is an issue that affects God. Anytime God is displaced from being supreme, it affects God. These guys are idol worshipers. Why does Abram get such 
benefit. And wouldn't it just be enough if God were to show up in Abram's life as he's trafficking in Ur of the Chaldees with all of his idol-worshiping lifestyle and just show up and say, uh, Abram just wanted you to know, I'm the one true God, the God of the universe, and you've offended me by your worship of idols and substituting other things is more important to me, and I just want you to know I'm not going to wipe you out. Okay? That'd be good news, right? But what does God do when he shows up in Abram's life? He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. Your name is going to be great. You're going to be a great nation. I'm going to give you a multitude of children. Your reward will be great. Reward? Reward for what? He's an idol worshiper. Why is God coming to this guy in order to bless him so lavishly? That's a good question. But it's what God keeps on doing. You keep reading the rest of these stories and you just get more of the same question. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now, interesting thing here, if you follow the lineage of God's promise, there were two children in the womb, as we just saw in Romans 9, Jacob and Esau. God chooses Jacob before they've done anything in their life, good or bad, to deserve any choosing. God chooses Jacob to bless him and to bring him into this covenant. God does not choose Esau. He gives Esau some land, but you don't ever hear about God hanging out with Esau anymore. But with Jacob and his descendants, God God is going to take on a special relationship with Jacob and his descendants from this day forward. And you're left asking the question, why does Jacob receive the covenant promise and not Esau or his descendants? Verse 5. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw that what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Now, you know, we get so caught up into that story, we don't ever stop sometimes and consider what an injustice was done to the Egyptians. You ever stop and wonder, why did the Israelites get God on their side? Remember, your forefathers worshipped idols. And if you follow the history, and Joshua right here in just a moment is going to tell the people, look, guys, don't keep worshipping the idols that your fathers had. Apparently... The idols died slowly in the lives of the, of the Israelites. They still carried these goofy idols from beyond the river when Terah was the father before Abram was. Well, why is Israel's idolatry different than Egypt's idolatry? Why does God drown the Egyptians, plague all of them, while all the Israelites live in Goshen and none of the plagues touch them? Why do they get to walk through the water that God opened up for them, but the Egyptians get to be drowned by the water that God opened up for them? Do you ever think through some of this stuff? Do you ever recognize God is relating to Israel in a way that he's not relating to anybody else? He has relocated them into a realm of grace. Not grace that they deserve. Right? We have front row seats for Israel in their lifestyle, don't we? These guys are faithless. They don't honor God. 
They have moments of greatness followed by moments of severe downfalls and sinfulness and corruption. And yet God is up to something. In verse 8, Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. And Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Do you, do you see a peculiar action of God here? God goes in and kicks out all these people from the land so he can give them to his friends. Now, do you understand? Israel has a, a weird element. Sometimes we read the Bible as though this Bible is written to the world. It's not. It's recording God's relationship to Israel. Do you ever stop and wonder? Why does Israel get all this special treatment? Why do they get the covenant with God? There's no covenants with God anywhere else with other nations. Why did they get the tabernacle? Remember, the tabernacle is the place of God's dwelling. God, the whole earth is the Lord's, but he chooses to dwell and he gives that to the Israelites. He doesn't get to anybody else. Nobody else gets that. Why? Do you see peculiar blessing for the people of Israel? I do. And this continues. This is God's purpose in election. And it continues and continues and continues. And God does it all over the place. The day that God chooses David to be king, he chooses the least of a family, and he rewards him with being king. And, and I don't have time to read Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, but if, if you go there, Second Samuel 7 is about God making a covenant with David. Now, again, wouldn't it just be enough if God would just forgive us? God, just pardon us. Call the tax man off. But instead, God keeps coming with gifts in his hands and blessings. And he finds David, who's this little nobody boy, hanging out watching sheep. And he says, I'm going to make you make you a king. You're going to be king over my people. And then he turns around and he pulls David aside through the prophet Nathan. And he makes a covenant with David. He says, David, I'm going to bless you, man. I'm going to bless your household. He didn't say, man, that was the 60s version of the Bible. But... I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your household great. I'm, your, your sons are going to sit upon the throne and there's going to be the eternal kingdom that comes out of your house. When God is done with that, you, you can hear David. I have to read it. I'm sorry. Second Samuel 7, verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. O Lord God. You want to know whether you're in touch with a correct view of the doctrine of the grace of God? 
uh, in, in this posture of receiving the grace of God, a frequent question that should come out of your mouth should sound just like David's. God, why are you doing this for me? This doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing this for me, God? That's what David's asking. It ought to be what every one of us are asking. Because when you understand that there's a group of people in Christ, and there's a vast group of people who are in Adam, and they will all be condemned. And only these who can't figure out why we're in Christ are going to receive abundance of grace for the rest of eternity from God. Now, you ought to be asking this question. Why are you doing this for me? I don't get it. See, because the question of it ever being deserved is off the table. Israel did not deserve God's favor. But yet God was insistent that he would constantly bring it. Abram is an idol worshiper. He doesn't deserve God's favor. There's nothing in his life that makes God come out of heaven and show up in this dusty land of Ur and saying, Abram, not only am I going to forgive you, you idol worshiper, but I'm going to bless you and make you great. His question, I'm sure, maybe this doesn't get recorded in the Bible, is, why me, God? Why are you doing this for me? I don't deserve this. See, you have to see how undeserving grace is to get an accurate ability to dislodge it from you being the source of it. You are not the source of God's grace in your life. You never were, and you never will be. God relates to you now because you are in His Son. Why does God do this? Because according to Romans 8, God causes all things to work together for the good for those who are called according to His purpose. According to Romans 9, that God's purpose in election would stand. According to Ephesians chapter 2, God has relocated us and saved us completely by His grace so that in the ages to come, He could continue to pour out grace upon grace upon grace. And if you understand your theology, and I'll tap into a few of you and maybe understand this. If you understand your theology, if God hadn't done it this way, He would not have been able to do it at all. Abram would have never turned to God on his own. Israel would never have chosen God. Matter of fact, they kept demonstrating that we don't choose you, God. We don't choose you, God. We don't choose you. Even after he chose them. If God had not done this, God's creation would know nothing of his grace or his mercy. It would only know his condemnation and his judgment. So why is God doing this? So that his grace may be known. This is very important for you and for me. Why is God going to do whatever he's going to do in your life tomorrow? So that his purpose of displaying his grace might continue. As it has been continuing since Genesis chapter 12, really since the Garden of Eden, all the way to today, God is going to put his grace into your life. Go ahead and come. I want to close with one thought here. What does this do for you? How do you respond to this? Well, watch how, watch how Joshua responds to having rehearsed the grace of God in his life. Verse 14, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river. This is 600 years later, and these people are still having to be told to put away their false gods. And yet God is still lavishing grace on them, even with their popping up little gods here and there. And serve, put these away, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, if you don't want to do that, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why does Joshua say that? Because he just got finished surveying the grace of God that came to his people and his ancestors and postured him for a reason he can't figure out, that this God is for us in an unbelievable way. As for me, I want to serve that God. Now, I think what Joshua exhibits, and, and I'll just read to see if you want to turn quickly, is, is Titus chapter 2. He exhibits this in his life. A desire, a zeal toward God, a, a desire to put away sin and idolatry based on grace. Not, not, not based on his merit or his demerit. Based on grace. He saw grace. His response was, I want to serve that God with faithfulness. I want to put away my idols. Listen, listen as I close with this verse from Titus 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, listen, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, um, you, are, you are so much more than pardoned today. Forgiveness is as wonderful of a news as that is. And it would be enough. There's more. There's a God who wants to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. You didn't bring that up with me. I brought it up with you. I'm, I'm going to do you good. I'm going to cause everything in your life to work together for good. In an amazing managerial way, I will make sure it all works together for good for you. Wow. Is that an insurance policy? I'm going to lavish my grace upon you. I've seated you in heavenly places so that for the rest of eternity, I can demonstrate grace into your life over and over and over again. That's how God is postured toward us. Now, my question is, is that benefiting us? Do you feel affected by how God sits at the edge of his seat looking at your life? desiring and trying to figure out how to blow your mind with grace next. That is what he is doing for all who are in this realm of grace. Question. Are you unsure that your future is good?
today and get this back into the world that you live in, get it out of the heady thoughts of theology. You came into this building today feeling a certain way, facing certain issues in your life. Certain things are going a certain way. You're kind of drawing lines and determining where they're going to end up. Are you unsure that your future is good? Because if you are, you must have lost sight of grace. You had to have. Can you, after all we just listened to, can you figure out for me how you can possibly not have a good future? If God is postured this way, and you're not new, he's been doing this since Genesis 12, to his people who are unfaithful and unworthy from the get-go. Can you possibly be unsure about your future, that it's good? I don't think so. Let's stand up together. Lord, how is it in our busy, buzzing lives that we can lose sight of something that if we read our Bibles, it's on every page. It's everywhere. It's you doing good to those who don't deserve it. It's you postured with grace and blessing to the failures and the down and outs the unworthy. Lavish grace. Abundant grace. God, today, give us a moment that Joshua had as he surveyed this God of grace who over and over and over again gives us an advantage against our opponents, postures blessing for our lives while taking something from another making sure the path that we walk on is a path that you have determined would be good and would fulfill your purposes for our lives. God, remind us so that we might stand like Joshua, knowing with certainty what a good future we must have. For it is in the hands of a God who is postured toward us to do us good in amazing grace. No matter who we have been, and no matter who we will become. What unbelievable grace, Lord. Lord, we are left asking the question, why are you doing this? Why have you been so kind to me? Why have you prepared and put me on this land of grace so that you could shower your kindness upon me in this life and in eternity to come. God, why am I in your grace? Your grace amazes us, Lord. As we close with this song, Lord, I I know that there are many needs in this building this morning. Let us get our eyes off of them for a moment because we see them incorrectly. 
if we don't see first how you are seated at the edge of your seat to bless us. So help us with this song, Lord, to see you, God of grace, once again.
After all, Lord, he was perfectly righteous in all of his ways, completely obedient to the Father's will. Why should we gain from his reward? We cannot give an answer, but this we know with all of our hearts. Your wounds have paid our ransom. They have gone further than that, and they have brought us into your family so that we rejoice this morning, not as those who are tolerated in your presence, but as sons and daughters before a father who's been gracious and who has just gotten started with pouring out grace on our lives. Thank you. Or may this be a week that we experience great grace and, and a greater awareness of the fullness of your favor on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful day. God bless you.